Howdy, folks. You're listening to the High Res, Low Res podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Fischel. Meeting art directors and designers as a young person was always nerve-wracking. In art school, your professors would tell you tall tales of uh, first- and second-hand experience stories about art directors guiding illustrators with grace and kindness to art directors who are literally king and queen makers creating the established illustrators we look up to today. And even so, portfolio reviews from art directors who have the coldest poker face that left people feeling like you didn't know if it went well and you didn't know if you were going to get an assignment from them or not or really ever again. And everyone knows those art directors and talks about them. It became so intimidating in my early 20s uh, when I heard all of these stories. But thankfully, I'm now in the back half of my 30s, and I've actually met and befriended a lot of art directors and designers. And honestly, a lot of them are, well, dorks, or they're passionate sport fans, or, you know, bibliophiles who just pour through hundreds of books a year. And even some that wax fondly about really experiencing life through travel, food, art, and culture. They're not these gatekeepers who mysteriously exist in legend uh, behind some veil or, I guess, an email, but they're actual real people who are doing really cool things on and off the clock, and they are actually totally approachable people. That is no different for our next guest on the show today, Diane Holton. Diane Holton is a freelance designer and art director and a self-proclaimed creator of experiences. Uh, some folks may only know them for their art direction work at AARP's The Girlfriend and Sisters Digital Newsletters, but they are more than that. For 14 years, Diane had served on the Washington, D.C.'s AIGA board, where she helped develop programming, where she really uplifted diverse voices in art and design, created a mentorship program pairing more than 60 mentors with young designers, and oversaw a design continuum scholarship fund, which raised funds for students with financial needs. Diane has also uh, done a lot for their freelance design practice, where she has art directed and designed the New York Times bestseller, Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book, and have also done a really cool collaboration with HP called Daily Digits. Uh, I know it's a few years old, but I still really like that project. Anyway, if you follow Diane on Instagram, you'll know that she's constantly immersing herself in museums and galleries and exhibits all around the globe and what she calls her travel diaries. We talk about a lot of things in this episode, and I think you are really going to enjoy it. If you liked our conversation, Please rate, comment, and review the podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the show, too. If you have a question, comment, or literally want to tell me something or recommend a guest, uh, please email me at goodbadjpeg at gmail.com. That's goodbadjpg at gmail.com. A little production note here. Around the 20, 23-minute mark, um, there's some technical difficulties with our internet connection dropping and I did the best I could to edit around it. Uh, hopefully I could do a seamless edit on it, but, uh, you know, it is what it is with, uh, the internet. Anyway, here's my conversation with Diane Holton. 
So I, I, I don't. I mean, I said this before we recorded, but I have to say, I think there's only five people I know uh, that if they asked me to, I would, you know, rent a car and drive them to the airport. I mean, otherwise, I'd just be like, I'm just going to Venmo you whatever your Uber ride is. So, like, you know, do you do that often with friends or just best friends or? Yeah, I only do that with select people. Like, don't <laughs> don't get it twisted. It's not this is not an everyday thing mm-hmm. um, because I don't live that far from one of the Washington, D.C. airports. I mm-hmm. can take I can take people or pick people up as needed. Um, I'm closer to Washington, Washington, Reagan or D.C.A. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're looking for somebody to pick you up at BWI or even Dallas. <laughs> Sorry, you <laughs> may be on. You may be on your own, friend. Um, but it also depends on, like, what time of day, you know, it is mm-hmm. um, because rush hour is real um, in the D.C. Right. metropolitan area. So if it, if it happens to be that, like, it's, like, you know, really late at night um, and there's no traffic, I could, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll do DCA. At BWI, like I said, mm-hmm. you're on your own with that one. Um, but, yeah, I had a best friend that was we, – just, we just came back from Morocco together, and she stayed at my house, and she had – she bought a lot mm. of – things so she had like four bags and she was trying to figure out how um four and a half bags and so she was trying to figure out how she could get them all back um and so she got a little frazzled is she uh, is she flying domestically or she's flying domestic domestic yeah okay. like i always try to pack as much as i can mm-hmm. for overhead bin i cannot think of like all the fees <laughs> to like actually have that stowed away underneath the plane oh i so i this is what i told her i was like <laughs> okay listen i was like you have two bags let's see you have two obvious like checked in bags like those are obvious so check those in i was like this other bag that you have filled to the max i mean te- technically it should go underneath your seat but mm-hmm. i think that the hack around that is it's it could it could kind of sort of look like a tote bag mm-hmm. so if you take the 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 messenger bag purse thing that you have that you're wearing and you hide that underneath your coat, right? When you're going through, um, then you could pretend like the big ass tote that you have is actually like your purse. And then you could have your other one as a carry on. Then when you get through, you can, you know, put one, um, obviously one will immediately go up and then you could kind of look around like it's a whole you can be dramatic yeah. oh my gosh it doesn't fit underneath the seat and you can put it up now if they flag you once you get to the gate though like we've gone through tsa because tsa doesn't care but once you go through the gate it's going to be the gate agents if those gate agents are looking at you sideways then they'll likely say ma'am you're gonna have to check that bag and then that's when you say okay here mm-hmm. you can check my bag and they'll they'll charge you I'm assuming, like, I don't know all all airlines' prices, but it'll be under $30. And I, so you could do that. Yeah, I feel like more times than not, whenever I'm flying to the Midwest, I'm mm-hmm. always finding that they're always just a little hairy about that. And they're just like, ah, just throw it underneath because, you know, the smaller planes that are flying to, like, Kansas City or something, they're just like, ah, we don't, you know, that's not going to fit. It's not going to fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she's going to Atlanta. So, and I okay. want to say it's a, it's a little bigger, a little bit bigger. Yeah. And so I just feel, I just felt like, you know, at this point, just try it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, what we didn't want to do was have to mail it, you know, because now you're paying, now it's an extra stop um, along the way to the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's more money because now you're talking about more weight. Um, I gave her the suggestion of like, of using one of my bags, but she was determined to use the bags, the bag that she had. So I said, okay. All right, you're on mm-hmm. your own. Good luck. I dropped her off, waved, and like got out of there on two wheels. Right. So 
you you grew up in a military family. Did your love of travel come from your family traveling all over the world, like Berlin and Seoul, and yeah. just li- and like living there and experiencing the culture? Yep, all of that. So I, um, my dad was a mil- was a army colonel, full bird colonel, um, and we traveled. My brother and I traveled around the world with him and my mom for you know our throughout the duration of our mm-hmm. um, our time with him as a dependent time with them as a dependent. And so we lived mainly on the East Coast, up and down the East Coast, um, before we, you know, moved abroad to to Europe, to Berlin, and also to Seoul. So I was there, I was at the Seoul um, Olympics, 1988 Olympics. I lived um, down there. Yeah, I used to babysit for, I used to babysit for people who were either teaching English um, to local Koreans or were going to the games during the during the the, the Olympics. They were always looking for babysitters, and so I made lots of money then. <laughs> um, and then I was in I was in Berlin actually after the, right after the wall went down. Not long after, my dad was a battalion commander, and he closed down the base. He was he was one of the the officers that. Um, shut, got the Allied forces out of there, uh, the U.S. Allied forces. So we lived not on a base. We lived in the neighborhood. And actually, just recently, um, <laughs> just recently, for those who follow me on Instagram, this is a, this is a, <laughs> this is a trip that you did not see. Um, but I was in Berlin actually last month in December. Yeah. Um, and when I went, I asked my friend if I could go back and revisit my house. Actually, um, I went to Berlin twice this year. It's not on the gram. Um, I went you know, over the summer and then I went back um, in, in December. But this time I actually went back to uh, the former West to my neighborhood and and saw my my former home. Wow. Um, and that was pretty that was pretty cool. Like I took pictures They had obviously like updated it and made some like some cosmetic changes. But the architecture was there. Um, so I took pictures, showed it to my mom, you know, and my mom and dad to confirm that that, that definitely was the house. And mm-hmm. You know, you know, like kind of for a second relived um, 94, the year of 94. I, I feel like any time I've visited places that I like used to live at when I was younger, I feel like, you know, there's like feels like a Mike Birbiglia joke where I'm just like, oh, everything's just so much smaller when I'm here. And it just feels a little different. But all like the memory is almost the same kind of yeah. you that kind of moment. I actually that I will tell you that no, <laughs> what I couldn't remember. So the house was the house was a, a really good size. Mm-hmm. Um, what I couldn't remember, what I was struggling with was that was the the, the garage. There was a garage that used to be all that used to be pushed back, and when this time it was brought forward. So I, I was like, I think that's a cos- that's a cosmetic change. Um, I grew up my, because of my dad's um, rank and his job. He had a driver, so oh. the driver would always. I remember the driver would always pull in the driveway, and it went down some way. So that's why I was like, this. It looked a little different on that side. Also, across the street, I didn't remember there being some dignitary with a guard. And so I got there, and I was looking. And I was like, this doesn't look. This doesn't look familiar. I totally, you know, blanked blanked out on that. But then when I talked to my parents, they were like, no, there was you know, some, somebody that lived across the street. Um, and th- yeah, that space is that tracks after all these years. So I couldn't remember, I will tell you though, I couldn't remember the, um, I remember the street, like I used to walk to school and I used to catch the train and all the things, um, because we came a different direction. I couldn't remember all the specifics of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, t- it was, I knew that if I had just, I knew if I either looked at p- prior pictures before I went or just 
stood, just walked around a little bit more for a little longer, I think I would have, things would have come back. But at the moment, the only thing I can remember was the house that I lived in. Um, and then like a couple of small, like, um, landmarks that were in the neighborhood, but we lived, we lived in the, we lived in a German neighborhood in the form, in the former West. So, um, wow. it was good to be back and kind of see, you know, just how much things had changed and mm-hmm. had not changed. Um, the house did get a fresh coat of paint, so it was a little bit brighter than what we had, but otherwise it was like a, a pale yellow. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, some people were into that, I guess. Yeah. So, um, what, of all the cities that you lived in, kind of growing up along the East Coast, which was your favorite? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that it was, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's hard to say because I didn't, I wasn't crazy about any of them to be yeah. honest um were I, you mostly on base is that why and so you don't really no, get to experience it or no we lived i would say that we lived in in neighborhoods okay. you know we we rarely lived on base um i think i just wasn't i don't know i don't know why i wasn't keen on it i i think maybe, mm-hmm. maybe north carolina might have been you know a fun place i i don't know i feel like i was always looking for the next place to go um I would say that I probably enjoyed my time abroad, honestly, because it was a different culture. Mm-hmm. It was really a new experience. Um, and I felt, like, I felt like I bonded more with people abroad than I did. And I, had a, I was able to gain some perspective. Whereas in the United States, I was like, I don't understand why people are acting like this. Like, I just, I felt, I just, I don't know. I didn't feel like the people I interacted with were as well-rounded and, and mm-hmm. as exposed. Because, right. And part, part of that might have been because I lived in a neighborhood, lived in like regular neighborhoods. And people weren't traveling as much as our, our family was traveling. So it could have been it very well. All right. Yeah, fair enough. So um, you grew up everywhere and then uh, graduated high school. Uh, the first college you ended up going to was uh, Parsons or no. Florida. Yeah, I actually went to Florida A&M University, which is my parents' mm-hmm. alma mater. So when I graduated from high school in Berlin, they, um, <clears throat> excuse me, before they moved again, they dropped me off at Florida A&M and was like, deuces. Um, and that was, <laughs> that was a little bit of a shock because for me, because um, I had never, I'd always grown up um, in a multicultural environment. So to right. go to a historically black school was, 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 was challenging for me mm-hmm. only because it was just a, di- a different environment, but like all environments I learned to navigate. So right. I remember the first year I was like, I need to get out of here. I was like, this is not it for me. And, and my parents said, well, just finish the semester. And then, I mean, finish the year, you know, finish your freshman year and then we'll transfer you to another school. And I didn't want to stay necessarily in Florida. I wanted to go to art school. At that point, I knew mm-hmm. that I wanted to do something creative. And I just was like, I want to be immersed. And I don't feel like this is a four year school and they have really great programs. My program was not the strongest. Um, like design was not the, not the strongest. It was more they catered more to journalism, school of journalism, um, business, school of business, um, all the sciences. They had excellent mm-hmm. programs. Mine was okay, but so I, I felt like I wanted to be. I felt like my heart was in a school, and I would benefit from a school that was it was had an amazing art program. Um, so my parents said, stay for the, stay, you know, stay until the end of the year and then we'll look at the transfer you. And then once I realized, like after getting four eyes out of, t- I got four incompletes <laughs> and passed two classes that first semester. Um, and then I got them, you know, all changed and whatnot and finished out the second semester. I realized that like, I probably should just stay and learn to adapt in this environment. Mm-hmm. I was so used to moving around and adapting all these different places, um, and, and, 
all these different diverse environments that I felt like this was just going to, this is just another challenge. So I got to like halfway through my, my second semester and I was like, you know what? When I come out of the school, I'm do, I'll do four years. When I come out of the school, I feel like I'm going to be even more well-rounded. Um, I'll, I'll know how to navigate. And so that's what I committed to. Okay, cool. Was there any like specific mentors or any particular instructors there that really changed your mind or really kind of like held your hand to really help no. you or no? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I, I, we had, you know, I think that, I think I bonded a lot with my graphic design colleagues yeah. and peers, um, fellow students. I think that they were, I think the design profession, the design, design professors were great. Don't get me wrong. And there were right. some that like, yeah, they coached, they coached, um, and mentored students along the way. I can't say that my design instructors were that so much. I bonded more with the with an upperclassman, this guy named Jason Jones, um, who was two years my senior, um, and then other students that were in the journalism program. So I got even though my program was um, I majored in graphic design and print management. My um, peer, the my peers, my older peers, coaxed me into joining the school newspaper, um, which mm-hmm. was something that like my program. My, my professors were, weren't really um, gung-ho about. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to focus more on agency, you know, going into agency. And I was just like, you're saying agency, but I know design is broad. So let me see what media is about. So I joined the school newspaper um, as a designer and then became, then the following year became the art director. But it was under the toolage of a, of a upperclassman who was a designer who was graduating. And then I, you know, bonded with the journalism students, watched as they got, um, got recruiters, as recruiters came for them, you know, every semester. Um, I, I, watching them go through the process of being recruited, I then realized, like, okay, I need to do internships. Like, they're all doing internships, you know, starting with their freshman year. They're doing journalism internships. And design, we weren't forced to do that. So once I realized, like, my junior year that, like, internships is the way to go, then I started, I really leaned into that. Um, I would say the professor Richie, who was the advisor for the journal for the school newspaper, and also um, one of the professors in the journalism program, she was probably more so my mentor. Oh, she helped okay. me write my resume, my cover letter, um, and gave me a lot of tips and advice. The same advice that she would give, you know, her journalism and broadcast students. So um, I would say if there was one person that probably made a big, like professor-wise, I made a big deal. It's probably Professor Richie, mm-hmm. and then um, my, you know my peers that were in the journalism program, um, as far as like getting into internships. Now my designs, my fellow designers, like, you know, design, um, peers, I still stay in contact with a lot of them. We, we did bond, but we did, I feel like they did not push me into media and into getting internships. They were very supportive as, you know, as, as it related to learning the tools, coming up with great, you know, with fun designs or applicable designs for class. But as far as like career building stuff, I think that came from, you know, um, getting out, stepping outside of uh, my program and going and and volunteering my time and services with the school newspaper. Cool. Um, What internship did you end up getting into while in school? Yeah. So I did internship with um, Stars and Stripes um, newspaper. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that whole, it was a conglomerate of newspapers, um, under stars and stripes. And so I, I think actually that actually was, uh, secured in part due to my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, my mom didn't, she wasn't into media, but she, once she started, once she learned like what it was I was doing, she was like, you know, she, she became 
um, an advocate and she started to network <laughs> for me. And so <laughs> she would be, you know, meet, she would be meeting, you know, various people and she would casually mention that I was studying design at Florida A&M and would possibly, you know, be looking for an internship or a job or whatever. And um, through one of her contacts, somebody said, oh, I know somebody. And it just kind of went from there. And I applied. It wasn't a gift. I applied um, and got, you know, was selected to, to be an intern and worked on multiple of their, prop- multiple of their properties that summer. Um, so I did that. And then I also... Um, joined Landmark Communications. Um, so I interned I interned over the summer, not during the year. Um, yeah. And I did not work. Um, I didn't have a job uh, while I was in school. So I relied heavily on my parents and my allowance. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I interned with Landmark Communications, that took me to the Virginian Pilot, to Roanoke News, and to Greensboro News and Record. And so I interned with the Virginian Pilot for... Um, a semester, and then they asked me if I would come back after I graduated to do a, uh, a year-long series of internships. And so I moved, when I graduated, I moved to uh, Norfolk and um, was in the, it's interesting because my Virginia pilot internship was specifically in the graphics department, um, mm-hmm. graphics and illustration. So I illustrated, um, illustrated locator maps, um, big maps, I, uh, I did all, I did illustration work like a typical illustrator would do. What what was that like in the nineties? Um, I I feel like, uh, it was old school. We had air, the airbrush and stuff. Yeah. I, I wasn't an airbrusher. I, so it was interesting in the Virginia pilot. I was embedded. Um, I was one of their youngest, um, interns that they Mm -hmm. had had. And, um, everybody in this, in the space, all, like, I would say like six or seven illustrators in the design in the graphic, uh, graphic design department, they were all older. I mean, the oldest, the youngest person was probably maybe in his th- early thirties. Everybody else was older and they all had their unique skill set. So like one guy worked in 3d, one guy, um, did airbrush was an airbrusher. He had been there for years. Two of them were like airbrushers. One was a puppeteer that also did like, um, uh, claymation and a whole bunch of other Like they all had these different skill sets, which was great because it was a daily newspaper that was also a springboard for, for designers and photographers to, to get their career. And, and I guess writers too. And so I came on board and was just like captivated by like all the different interests that everybody had in the skill set. And while I was, so while I was there, I would, I worked during the day and the, it was the, uh, design team. I mean, the graphic design team, they worked mainly in the, in the evening. They would come in in the afternoon and close out the newspaper. So I would come in, I would come in with one other person during the day and we would do like the, the earlier, the day, daily assignments, like the early, like prepping stuff for the evening. And then the team would come in in the afternoon and they would all have their assignments and, you know, assignments change when you're working on a daily assignments change throughout the day. So, you know, it start off with one story and then by the time you get to, you know, six o'clock and you're in those meetings, it's a whole different, you know, that's no longer priority. It's something else. Mm-hmm. So, um, being part of that was fascinating for me. It was also stressful because, and I realized that like, mm, Daily I don't news know ain't I, you. it's not me, but I'm going <laughs> to give it all I can, but this isn't me. I just, I really relished the fact that like everybody else, everybody that was in that space though, really owned what they did. did. I also knew the power of networking though. I knew what it, I knew that like coming in from school and watching how the journalism students worked and navigated, I realized that like, you always have to keep, you know, always have to be ready and to, to have conversations about your career and, you know, um, future contacts. So I made sure that like, as while I was there, I met, you know, a variety of different people. One of the people that I ended up meeting, 
um, was a photographer who was this, um, I mean, he wasn't a junior photographer, but he was a staff photographer and he was fairly well, just fairly, fairly good. Just like all the other photographers. Well, fast forward many, 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 many years, like literally a couple of years ago, I'm on the train coming from New, coming from New York, going back to DC. And I see this guy and I'm like, he looks familiar, but I don't like just, I'm like, he looks familiar, but I don't really place him. He has like gray hair now, you know, he's a little bit older and we kind of, we catch eyes and he's like, Diane. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lawrence. And kind of find out it was a staff photographer from when I was in, when I was intern there, he had become, um, the number two photographer during Obama's administration. So it was wow. Pete Souza and there's Lawrence Jackson. And he was, he worked with them throughout his, you know, his time at the White House. And he had just, he was just coming back from New York because he was, had done an uh, NPR interview um, for a book about the Obamas that he, a photo book that he had just, you know, had just written, had just produced. So small world. And now we like, we stay in contact. He lives in the DC area. We don't, I don't see, see him outside of social media, but it's just like, you just never know where people are going to go and how they're going to grow. But the Virginia pilot was, like I said, was a springboard for a lot of creatives. And so I knew I could see that like during my time there, I saw where people went, you know, I saw them going to bigger newspapers and um, just having thriving careers. So I was like, okay, let me just like say, even though like, I don't think this is really my thing. This is really my beat. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to do what I can here and take advantage of the opportunities that are, you know, that I'm, that I've been given. One of those opportunities, uh, one of those uh, uh, people that were also there was this woman named Courtney Murphy. And Courtney Murphy was a, a page designer that had, um, had, had gotten a special projects title. And she didn't sit out in the rest of the newsroom with the other page designers. She sat in the graphic design department, I mean, the illustration department with the illustrators. And one of the reasons why I think she did is because she knew that if she sat there, she would have access to all of these artists when she was working on, you know, special packages and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we be, you know, I befriended her. Fast forward, as I was there as an intern, fast forward, Courtney leaves, moves to London. At the time, she was married. She's working in media. She didn't leave. She comes back to the States. She gets a job. In 2006, I come across an an email, uh, you know, with a job posting, and it says, you know, it, it has this person's name, and it says, like, you know, if you have any, if you're interested, blah, 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 send this, that, and the other to Courtney Murphy. At AARP. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at him like, oh, it's Courtney. And so I immediately like reach her. I'm not looking for a job. I'm like, I just right. reach out to her because I'm like, it's been all these years and she's right here, you know, in this area. And so I reach out to her and I'm like, hey, can we just like set up a, you know, just can I come by and say hi or something? And she was like, yeah. And so I come by and then, you know, the, the rest goes, we go from there. But um, so I, I understand the power of just, again, keeping contact with people and not burning bridges and learning what you can and parlaying that into something else. Because you never know, like, where life will take you and that you don't know where your career will take you and what will open up. Um, but, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, um, at the Virginia Pilot. I was there twice. Yeah. Um, I was there right after school to start my uh, – I was there right before I graduated and then I was there um, – no, I'm sorry. I was there right after I graduated. And then right. I went around to the different cities and then I came back. And upon coming back is when um, I had been interviewing with USA Today. And I, I actually left my internship a little bit earlier to take the job um, at USA Today. Uh, because of networking, you uh, ended up at AARP. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, you know, how was your time at USA Today before that, like leading up to uh, AARP? Yeah, it was good. I had an amazing boss. I think what I've always been very fortunate 
is to have, whether it's like through internships or through professional full-time jobs. Um, I've had a really amazing boss that always push me um, and elevate me and always know how to do my job better than, than I can do it, which is what it should be. I feel like I'm having, I'm hearing a lot of conversations where sometimes the employees are better than their bosses. Um, not a good look. Um, mm-hmm. but I feel like mine were always really well-rounded, um, and could do what I could do much better and also had just like lots of wisdom. So working at USA Today was great because I had a, a, a boss that I could, a design director that I could be very candid with. Um, and he could be very candid with me. So when I got ready to look for another job or look for other jobs, we could have those conversations. You know, it wasn't taboo. Um, and so, yeah, my time was great. I worked on the mm-hmm. magazine, um, USA Weekend magazine, which had at the time, I want to say 28 million eyeballs. It was a lifestyle publication. It appeared in all of the Gannett um, papers. So I believe at the time there were like 34 um, Gannett properties. And it appeared in that. It was The competition was um, Parade. So that was our biggest competitor. They had almost the same circulation, give or take a couple million. Um, But it was a tabloid publication that focused on lifestyle. It always had a celebrity cover. So I groomed my, I groomed um, and was educated on the world of photography as it related to celebrity mainly, but also to with stock. Um, I was able to also hone my chops in um, commissioning artists because when I worked at dailies, the three, four dailies that I worked prior Um, We had in-house artists. We had in-house illustrators. We had staff photographers. So there was no need to commission anybody. Um, And we didn't do a lot of um, stock. We didn't do a lot of stock photography because, again, we had photographers that would just go into the studio and and would shoot whatever we needed. So working at USA Today, USA Weekend was great for me because, again, I got introduced to the world of commissioning um, artists based on certain aesthetics, based on the aesthetic of the brand. So that was new. Um, it had, you know, like anything, it has its trials and tribulations, but I, I learned to, I, I learned, I gathered, got an appreciation for it and for the artists that I, mm-hmm. that I worked with. Um, so yeah, it was a good experience. Um, and then the photo shoots were always interesting. You know, like I didn't go to all of the, I wasn't working on cover stories. I, well, yeah, actually I took it back. I, I started working on cover stories a little bit later after I kind of got into it, but, um, I enjoyed, you know, the photo shoots, both the still life and the and the real people and the um, celebrity ones. Usually when I would do the celebrity ones, I would go with the design director. Um, but every now and then I would do one on my own, you know, and, and that was interesting, yeah. <laughs> to say so, the least. Uh, when you were at USA Today, was it before or after or during uh, their redesign when they did that whole big redesign with the big blue dot and all that? It was... After, I believe. Ah, uh, got it. Yeah, I think. <laughs> it was um, from 1998. No, 1999, I think. 1999 to like 2006. There's a term for that kind of design where it became like a really big thing of uh, how like you have like one design element that can then be transformed in a way. Same thing uh, with the Hillary Clinton uh, like H logo, how they mm-hmm. were able to like really reuse that and really put different graphic shapes within it. Yeah. I, I, I will that... say though that we did not, and the, for the magazine, yeah. we did not utilize that um, okay. methodology. Yeah. We didn't, we, we kept it. And now that you say that I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, maybe we did, maybe, maybe I was there before, before it, because I don't remember utilizing the dot at all, the big blue right. dot, but I do remember seeing it on the flagship, 
mm-hmm. you know, ta- uh, the flagship broadsheet newspaper. USA Weekend did not, though. We didn't utilize the, um, or at least when I was there, we did not use like, utilize the architecture um, or those elements. We right. just, we had our nameplate and then everything else was streamlined and consistent with the aesthetic, but um, the dot didn't bounce around like you, to what you, mm-hmm. to what you refer. So um, I, I'd love to know, like, some of the big the big projects that you've worked at AARP that kind of brought you a lot of joy because I, I feel like as you know millennials you know we're known for bouncing around at different jobs all the time you know uh for whatever reason whether it's money or fulfillment or whatever uh I feel like being somewhere for so long you must get a lot of fulfillment from your gig there like I, I'd love to know some of like your favorite uh, projects and some great stories, whether with illustrators, photographers. This is not an illustration podcast per se. It's yeah. creative in general. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about like that. Yeah. Um, so coming to ARP was was fun. <laughs> I wasn't sure what you know what all to expect because I had been in the world of um, I've been in the world of newsprint. And that transition of going from, you know, newspaper to magazine was actually much harder than people think. I did a lot of networking, like a ton of networking um, in the magazine industry to get to, to, to so that a door could open and I could be appreciated and recognized. There was a stigma between the between newspaper and magazines, hence Society of News Design and Society of Publication Design, two I, totally different organizations. I, I didn't know that there was such a divide between the two mm-hmm. because I feel like they're more like brother and sister in terms of thinking about design. It's just the difference is just pace in terms of like when you're putting things out. It was. Um, but during back in my day, yeah. <laughs> um, it was as a design, as a designer, it was a lot harder to get into the space, especially if you were a designer that wasn't in New York. Right. Okay. And I was a designer that wasn't in New York. I was a designer that was outside of New York, even though I worked at a big, you know, a big brand. It still it didn't matter who I talked to. People magazine in style folks, you know, timing, you know, essence. folks. You know, it didn't matter who I talked to. There was always like, eh, I don't know. And I, I said the same thing. I had the same shared sentiments. I was like, I, I worked at dailies. Right. I worked at a weekly. Like I was like, I can move at the speed that a faster speed than the, the magazine designers can because they I'm not going to say they overthink it, but they just sit with stuff a little bit longer. They have a longer lead time with a, with news news folks. You, you're moving fast. You learn how to be effective, efficient, consistent, you know, at a moment's notice. And every day is a different day. So I couldn't quite understand why there was why it was why they they looked down upon it was mainly the magazine folks looked down upon you know the the news industry at least that's what i that's what i saw um but again thanks to my networking because i had a because i had worked at virginia pilot alongside or in the same room as a special projects designer who the special projects designer actually kind of teetered between daily news and 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 feature and um and, and long leads because Courtney was a features designer. She was a special projects and features, which meant she worked on stuff that had a longer lead time and she could actually cultivate like really great packages, which those packages could translate easily to magazines. So I think for her, that allowed she her transition was probably a lot mm-hmm. easier than, say, mine, that w- which was daily like locator maps and spot right. illustrations and stuff like that. Um, 
And so, but because I, I, I knew her in at Virginia Pilot, when I reached out to her and she, I was a familiar voice and face, you know, and so she saw, you know, obviously I brought my portfolio just to kind of show her what I had been doing. Actually, she asked for it and I, I brought my portfolio and um, in that conversation, she revealed that, you know, she had this opportunity and that if I, if, if I was willing to, to um, entertain it, you know, we'd go through the mm-hmm. motions of, of interviewing for it. And so that's what I did, because ultimately I wanted to try out the magazine world um, before I deci- before I made the, the decision to just get out of editorial and, and pursue another area of design. Because right. let's be honest, design is very broad. And so you can go a thousand different ways. Um, but I didn't want to just I didn't want to sign out until I'd gotten the magazine opportunity. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. um, ARP with its 38 million circulation was that opportunity. Um, so you asked um, the question of like what kept me, what keeps me there, like some yep. of the projects that I worked on. Um, I would have to say though, I, I'd have to say it's been a plethora of different opportunities, um, mainly because my job is, has evolved and changed since being there. I came as an associate art director. I'm now, you know, senior deputy art director. Blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah. Um, I'm no longer just, just like work- title bomb, t- you know, pay bomb, just like, here's this new thing, yes. different responsibilities. Exactly. Word salad all yep. day long. <laughs> um, and I started off as like, you know, as, as a, as a designer working on front of book and back of book, um, you know, assignments, uh, designs rather than commissioning some things and contributing to the concepts of like, you know, bigger packages and stuff like that to now like doing mainly cover stories for the for the major publication a couple of entertainment mm-hmm. pages inside and then I lead creative for two new sub brands ARP's created so there's I've had like I've I've been there long enough to go through some things to work on tablet you know when there was a big tablet boom and oh, everybody yeah. was interactive you know building pages and learning interactive to like doing some stuff on the web and supporting the web folks and you know so I've been there long enough that I have a plethora of just experience um, I'd have to say it's, it's hard actually to double down into like five, yeah. to distill it down to five. But some of the ones that I think that kind of speak to me um, involve a little bit of everything. Right. So, for instance, um, one that I was one that I was really, I think, very happy with that's been that was recent, like in, in 2022 was a Tyler Perry um, photo shoot that I worked with with Jane, uh, our photo editor, Jane Clark. And the reason why that one was so important was because we're, in, you know, we're coming out of a, we're still in a pandemic. Um, and mm-hmm. it was an opportunity to go to uh, his actual campus, which isn't open to the public, you know, at this time. Um, in Atlanta? In Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and it's on a, confed- a former Confederate base. And Whoa. so the fact, yeah, so this is, there's a lot of symbolism there. It's heavy. It's very heavy. And so to go there and he- hear him tell his story um, was major, like just, you know, talking to him, um, and also just like being in the room as he's, you know, as he's sharing stuff, um, for, for our videographers and whatnot. Um, but being present in that space, you know, um, I grew up, I was born on a military base. that was very similar, mm-hmm. had very similar architecture. So I recognized like the, the layout of the base, you know, the homes, the big fields in the middle. Um, and while they're getting ready to set up for the, for the shoot, um, the photographer that we worked with, um, wanted him was sc- doing some scouting and he used me because tall black woman, you know, person with, with same color melanated skin mm-hmm. used me as a proxy for his, you know, to set up the shoot. And one of the things that, um, that transpired was there was a shot, there was a location on the base, on the field, um, where it was, um, a row of roses and, and then there was a huge blue sky and there was this big flag. Um, 
And as we were standing there and this photographer was doing the shoot, it came to it came to my awareness and attention that the the roses, the white roses didn't actually look like white roses when photographed. They look like cotton. And being oh. in the South, right, and being on a Confederate property and knowing there was, has been a lot of death, a lot of heartache, a lot. There's just so much. <laughs> it, like you said, it's heavy that that symbolism was just like almost gut wrenching to realize that, to see that. And so um, we actually talked to him about actually talked to Mr. Perry about swapping out those roses, not us, but him as he's renovating things, swapping those white roses out that have no semblance to um, to actual cotton since he is, you know, he is in, big into history. He also has like 30 plus Bibles that are buried throughout the, the campus, um, unknown locations to the public, but um, he felt like he needed to cleanse you know, he needed to cleanse that space because there had been so much death and heartache and just, again, you know, what that base symbolized and what had been there. So yeah. like hearing all these different factoids and seeing what this one man did, this one black man did, you know, his hustle, his like was was overwhelming and, and, and powerful and just riding through the campus and seeing just how he's continuing to grow and utilize the property. And it just and then to then to meet him and actually like, you know, say to the photographer, you need to change his clothes because those clothes aren't, you know, like being able to then also say command, you know, command the, the um, be able to be able to art direct and say, you know, despite despite being captivated by all that I'm around, I still have to do my job. But being able to say to the photographer, hey, we got to stop because those clothes aren't working to the you know, one of the, the most powerful men in the um, yeah. entertainment industry was huge for me. You know, I could walk away and I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't I can't believe I just did that. Um but, you know, so I would say that's a highlight, working with Tyler Perry um, for a cover shoot for AARP and hearing his story and being on the campus. That was a major, that was, that was a lifetime moment for me. Um, what, what year is that? Actually, May 2022. Okay. So I shot, I photographed did, it in May 22, but it came out in August 2022. Did, did, did he? Uh, it had a lot of press. <laughs> Lot. Did did he reveal like yo? By the way, like Harry and Meg- Megan are at my no. LA. No? no, but it's funny you should say that because after <laughs> I learned that, I was like, oh, he was he was that was happening. You know, like he was yeah. they were at his house and you know in LA. And no, he was the thing is he is probably the most professional person I've also encountered too. Like mm-hmm. he was he, he we were told that you know when it when it's time for him to come up when, when you're working with him and and there's you give him a call time or there's a call time established, don't expect him to come at that call time. Expect him to come 30 minutes before. And he is that guy. He is that punctual, you know, and he comes in and he means business. Like there's mm-hmm. not he doesn't just like la di da do do do. He is he comes in. What are we, you know, he knows usually what he's supposed to do. He turns it on. He turns it off. He keeps it moving. And when I think about all the things that, that he's doing and then, you know, on top of that, he's, you know, he's the godfather to Megan and Harry's kid and they're going through all this stuff. He, I'm sure, had a lot on his brain, but you never got that impression that he was b- bothered by something or that something was, yeah. you know, that he had 10,000 things going on. I just saw him as like really, really professional, um, courteous, but really professional. Time was definitely of the essence. Um, so I'd say right. that, um, as it relates to, gosh, I think overall, I think I've enjoyed working on the illustration front. I've, mm-hmm. I have enjoyed this opportunity to have the keys to the car, to be able to hire the artists I want to work with. Mm-hmm. Because when I first got to ARP, I was again, an associate art director. 
or let's just say I was a designer. Let's, let's cut out the titles. I was a junior designer on staff Mm -hmm. and I was, I would pitch illustrators based on the, the aesthetic, but it always boiled down to, you know, the design director or creative director, usually the design director or the art director make the final decision as to who to go to. Um, and they, the individuals I worked with were great. You know, there were a lot of big names, you know, names that like, you know, are still doing stuff are commanding really high, um, you know, uh, prices Mm -hmm. and and good for them. I'm not knocking anybody's hustle. Um, but they're, you know, in demand prestigious and that's great. Um, they're also male. They tend to be male and they tend to be Caucasian. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was given the opportunity many years later to like, to lead to sub brands that were geared towards women, I made a conscious decision to change the, change my involvement in that process. Um, and I felt like it was important that women's story, if this is a women's publication, these are women's publications, they should tell their own stories. And so, and, and they should tell their own stories through art and photo. And so, um, going forward, Every almost every artist that I hired was a woman or a woman of color, depending on the property. And the only men that I hired were men that were who who if the only men I hired were men whose whose stories were being told. So mm-hmm. if it was a man, if we had a male writer for that one particular story within this these sub brands, then I would hire a male illustrator. And I just mm-hmm. did that just to have you know have a little bit of diversity. And I have to say, I believe, Daniel, you were my first male illustrator yep. that I hired for the girlfriend.com. Yep. Um, so, you know, that's a testament to like, you know, our, our relationship and your work. Yeah, I mean, I think also I'm typically hired more often for my sensitivity to subject mm-hmm. matter. So mm-hmm. um, I, I often get hired for very sensitive work or just my take on things. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for hiring me. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's the thing. It's so competitive. The, the creative market is so competitive that, mm-hmm. um, I'll be honest, as I was telling somebody the other day, I don't just, I was telling, actually I was telling the person that was here, my best friend that was here, she was, I was trying to, she's a nurse and she was trying to understand like, you know, what it is I do and why I'm so, so much particular. Um, and then another conversation I had with somebody that was work, work related on the call, I said the same thing. And that is like, I'm super intentional with who I hire for, for, mm-hmm. uh, for pieces. Like, you know, yes, we get, you know, um, pitches all the time, but everybody has a different aesthetic and I have a certain aesthetic for the, the brands that I, that I work on. And so while I would love to work with some people who are amazing, I don't because it just doesn't fit the aesthetic that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm currently working on. But what I will do is I will bookmark, bookmark those individuals and save them to an op- for an opportunity, you know, when it presents itself. Or if I have a friend or somebody, a colleague that's in the business that's like, hey, I'm looking for such and such, I will happily refer them to that. So um, I don't want to be dismissive, but when it came to like the girlfriend and, and sisters in particular, those two brands, sub-brands that are geared towards women, I was like, yeah, I want to hire, I want to hire, you know, a male here and there, but I want to hire a male that's also, like you said, sensitive Mm -hmm. to this content and also is really good, you know, Mm -hmm. like, let's be honest, also fits the aesthetic, you know, illustration wise. And, um, and so there's been only three thus far, um, Mm -hmm. that have gotten that, you know, that opportunity. And on the women's side, it's the same thing, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I don't work with, with everybody. But again, very intentional. So I'm proud to say that I think one of the highlights of working at AARP was that opportunity and the opportunity to like not just work also with domestic artists, but be able to work with international as well. Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with international, domestic or international, I'm looking for um, looking for, again, aesthetic. Um, I'm looking for like, you know, levels of professionalism. I'm looking for like 
uh, how creative are they with concepts? Can they take direction? I'm also looking at granular stuff like how old are they? Are they really mm-hmm. young? Because I want to have a variety of ages. I don't want right. everybody to be 25, you know. Um, I, it's nice to have people who are, it's, it's nice and uh, I feel like appropriate to have people of a certain age when you are talking about things of a certain age because they've mm-hmm. been there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking to see if that person's a parent. Um, when, as it comes to race, I'm looking at, you know, um, this is really probably annual and granular and people are probably going to freak out when I say this. But I'm also looking at like, you know, what do they look like visually? Not mm-hmm. saying that it's going to change, change everything, but I'm hyper-focused, too, on, like, you know, is every, are people that I'm hiring, are they all, like, really, really fair-skinned? Mm-hmm. Or am I getting some melanated, like, dark mm-hmm. melanated people? Because I want, like, when, when I look back, I want to be able to see myself. I want to be able to say that, like, I have a wide swath and I have representation. And I know that's not what everybody does, but that's mm-hmm. just, like, that's one of the things I, like, uh, kind of a, a obsessed with and we'll spend a lot of time like just diving into, you know, who people are. Um, so that, so to your question, original question, right. like being able to hire um, a variety of, you know, women and, and BIPOC individuals um, and also people with varying sexualities and sexual uh, and, and religions, that has been a highlight of working at AARP. Um, hiring for the sub-brands, but also hiring some of those individuals for right. AARP, the magazine. So uh, if you're a photographer or an illustrator, uh, what are some things that you should have in your portfolio and like outside of your portfolio? Like you mentioned, like people, you, you want to know like who they are as like mm-hmm. a people, like, you know, what's their background? What's mm-hmm. their, like anything about that? Like, do you have uh, a way, like uh, any advice for anyone, whether a photographer or designer or an illustrator who wants to work with you, uh, whether it's for your freelance stuff or for, you know, stuff at AARP, uh, what is it, some stuff that you recommend that they should highlight or include or yeah. uh, or how they should approach you or uh, whether it be passively or directly? Yeah. So I would say probably email. <laughs> um yep. Emails usually when it comes to reaching out to me for, you know, for uh, possible work or possibly inclusion, as you as you said, mm-hmm. via AARP um, or, you know, some freelance project that I'm working on, um, I would say, you know, it's fine to send it's fine to, to, to reach out on social media, but I need follow up with the email um, that for mm-hmm. me is I'm old school in that way. And I prefer that I don't want to always be tethered to my phone or device or a phone or a tablet to try to like engage with, with somebody. So follow with the email, send the website, you know, maybe send some samples. I'll probably end up going to your website anyway. Um, you know, to view things. I like to have a short bio. You don't necessarily have to show a picture. I mean, that's not, I know a lot of people don't really, aren't really crazy about that, but I do like to know like where people are from. Like, um, you know, are they based in, you know, Romania or are they based in Buenos Aires? Like, I like to know that part. That's important to me. Um, I like to know, I don't necessarily need a client list, but you know, if you have one, that's fine. Um, because I've seen work at some of these big publications. That's not what I find to be great. It's like telling, it's like saying, Oh, I live in New York and I'm supposed to hire you. And you know, like (laughs) you may not be great at what you do. You just happen to live in New York. Um, so, so I would say, uh, you know, a short, a little short bio. I like to see organization. So I like to see that, like, I don't like, I would prefer things not being, um, uh, cluttered, like 
if you do editorial work, like, you know, categorize it as this is editorial work. If it's advertising, mm-hmm. advertising. If it's, the, you know, if it's portraits, portraits. Like, I think having your work categorized is helpful for the person who's looking just for people who do portraits, you know. Um, and it's, a, it's fine if individuals do, you know, if it's a photographer and they do uh, portraits and they do environmental and they do life, they do stills. It's great to have that. I just say organize it so that if I'm coming to you, I can see that you, I can see, um, I can look for the specific thing that I'm looking to hire somebody for. And I don't have to go through, you know, this long, uh, endless scroll, you know, of a mix of a a multitude of things. Um, Also, I've found that sometimes people will categorize their stuff and they'll be, let's say, strong in portraits. Say as an illustrator, they think they're, they pitch me as a portrait artist and they think that they're strong there. And I'll go on their website and I'll see lifestyle that I actually like. So now I'm not hiring you for the portrait. Mm -hmm. I'm actually hiring you for lifestyle. And I've had, Several um, iterations of that, uh, several commissions like that, where um, I've had artists that do also do lifestyle, and I only hire them for portraits because I think their portraits are very strong. So, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um, so, I said categorizing. I also I love when artists, um, photographers have like a cutting room floor um, category where it's the stuff that didn't get published. It's the stuff that like, it's the pieces that are either in sketch mode, sketches, or maybe they were finalized and they didn't get published for one reason or the other. I love seeing that because that shows me like your process. It shows me that you can do not just the published Mm -hmm. work, but also you have these other ideas that are out there that didn't make it for whatever reason. Um, And if people can, you know, kind of do have a one line explainer, that's great. But it's not the end of the world if you don't, if one doesn't, um, because we're visual people. And that's also that also allows for me to ask the question, what's this piece about, you know, Mm -hmm. if I reach out, if I reach out to somebody. Um, So I would say categorizing, having a cutting room floor, having a bio, reaching out to me via, fine to reach out via social media, but following up with the email, spelling Mm -hmm. my name right, automatic deduction, (laughs) if you add an E to my name or N, a double Mm -hmm. N and like, you know. the end of the world? Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I I was going to say there's like one art director in particular that uh, was really like stringent on like one letter being capitalized while oh. the other isn't not going to name any names, Understood. but, um, but yeah, I always felt that that was just a little like, come on, like I so get it, but the, for me, it but is like, but for you, it's just like you, you, literally like everywhere it's D I A everywhere. That's it. So I, I get that, but I don't know. I can't do, speak for... Do you, other, do you I, ever look at the website that, you know, their portfolio and they're like, all right, I'll give you a pass, but I'll mention... Yes. Sometimes I do. Okay. Um, sometimes I do. I, it, it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it, it's, it already puts me in a kind of in a like, ah, oh, so you don't pay attention to detail. Yeah. That's what it says to me. Okay. And it, and if I'm going to work with you and I and, and depending on what I'm also working on like if I'm working on the magazine I'm going to tell you honestly because I left the ladder up to other people it's already going to the 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 piece is already going to be scrutinized way more than it would if you're working on a weekly thing with me. Mm-hmm. So for that reason I already know we're going to have you know it's going to be it's going to be um it's not going to be difficult necessarily but there's going to be more eyeballs on it like right. internally before it goes out. So if you can't, if I can't get you, if you can't spell my name right and, name right and you're working with me, that's a detail that, that, that right. like, I don't, I just don't trust you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I've responded to people and I've said like, and oh, by the way, my name doesn't have an E on it. 
Um, because I also feel like if you're pitching me, if you're reaching out to me, then that's do due, due diligence. You know, it's one thing if you come back and you say like, oh, it's a it's an auto thing. Because I understand, you know, I understand auto auto correct. It'll add an E. Um, if we've had an exchange and I have a signature and it, mm-hmm. my signature says it, it's pretty clear and you still go forth, then I'm, I'm like, okay, we're like, what's happening? It's, it's a detailed thing. So for mm-hmm. me, it really is. It's, it's simply that I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that's a big pet peeve for me. Right. Um, other than that, I do, I mean, I look at almost everybody, anybody who emails me, um, I tend to, I do my best to try to write them back because I know that, you mm-hmm. know, that, that encouragement is very helpful. Um, a lot of people will send out, you know, will send out emails and they won't, or send out correspondence and they won't hear a word. Um, and, and it varies, you know, in like emerging and professional, they all, everybody's always saying it. But I, so I try my best to, so if I don't, that's, that's because I was probably slammed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I usually try to send something. Um, the form emails, you know, that look like you just sent it to every, anybody and everybody. I don't mind those. It's, I mean, I'm not going to lose any sleep if people send them. Mm-hmm. I do feel like it's kind of like when you're hot, when you're, you know, you're looking for a job, you know, any way to like slightly personalize it is great, but not the end of the world if it's right. not. Um, I like to work with, uh, I like to work with artists directly versus with agents. I understand the agent you, versus artist. Okay. So you're not the only person who's brought this up. Um, and it, does it have to do with the fact that sometimes the agent will just be a, like push a little too hard on like budgets and time or, and all that? Um, sometimes it's that sometimes it's, it's, Sometimes it can be budget. Um, very rarely for me lately, very rarely has it been budget. It's more they are gatekeeper. They are those gatekeepers. Yeah. Um, and they will, sometimes stuff will get lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I could, this could move much faster if I'm just working with artists. Right. You know, um, the fact they have, they copy and paste it and send it to them. I could just, I'm like, what are we doing? Like, let's just like, just have the artist on it, like flip just it. Have CC, it uh, just CC them on the email. Just CC the rep. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. that there's that. Also, I know that reps take a percentage of the cut, and I would love for the artist to be able to get the money. You know, yeah. get all the money. I mean that that's why I, I that's why uh, I think early in my practice as an illustrator, I was like, you know, I want to I want an art rep, mm-hmm. and then after a while, you know, really having friends that have. Reps who take, you know, anywhere from 20. I, I have a friend who has a rep 50. that takes 33%. Yeah. Um, for yeah. like every single thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I decided like I only want a literary rep. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to help me on like the bookend because mm-hmm. I'm really interested in expanding into that over the next, you know, five to 10 years. And, you know, they only take a 15% cut. And then there's some like tricky things in the contract where they take 20, but. Typically, if you're taking 20, you're making like 80 to 100 grand on a project. So who cares if they're taking that 15 to 20? So uh, that's why I was just like, all right, that's fine. Like, yeah, I think that I think that's it. I think. um, Yeah, I think it's a I think there's a time and place to have a rep, you know, like but I think you have to know what it is. You have to identify it as what you want to do. Right. So if you said books, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. But then maybe something else you don't. But I also know that, like, you know, having having a rep they take care of your taxes yep. they 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 follow up with your with the clients like they do all things so there's there's pros and cons to it i get it yeah. i just like i like to cut out the middleman only mainly because i like to cut out the middleman on uh in relationships where the rep is overbearing right like i would rather just like let's just i'd rather deal with the artists um wrap the job up um mm-hmm. you know 
um, give them the money, you know, all of the money versus the percentage. But again, I also understand the other side of that. Reps also do promotion. Really good reps mm-hmm. will do promotion. You know, they'll take care of all the tax stuff. They'll fight with the, like I said, with the client's payroll to get you your money, you know? Um, so that's, so there's again, pros and cons, but if I can, right. my, my, my choice would be work to work with the artist. Yeah. Um, However, I also know that artists don't like to do like invoicing and that has been a thing. And sometimes I'm just like, do you guys want to like route that money to me? Because it's been a whole year. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, for like when I get an email from a client saying, that's it, we're done. I'm like, invoice time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get it done that day or mm-hmm. the next day at the very latest. And that's it. I Rarely have I ever had to send an email or an invoice like months later and it's typically because like i just didn't know if the job was done or not or if if the job got killed or what have you and uh or some kind of like loss in translation thing i feel like that's like one or once or twice a year that happens yeah um and so yeah it, it really sucks uh the one thing that like um I have a couple friends that have just gotten into our direction mm-hmm. and like they wanted to be like the people that like, oh, I'm hiring all the people. And then they're like, they realize like some of these people are not <laughs> good at business. Seriously. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's, that is, that is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> you would be surprised. You're like, but wait, but don't you, how are you yeah. like, what? And they just are just not, they're not good at it. And so that's when you're like, okay, you need mm-hmm. a rep, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, to get paid. I, um, I try to advocate for the artists as much as I can internally, at least at AARP I do. Well, no, I think with everything, if I'm working with yeah. somebody, I try to take care of them and make sure they get, they get paid. Um, because this is their livelihood. You know, I work, I'm working mm-hmm. for some, some, somebody's institution. It's, I'm going to be okay. But, but with artists, it's so flexible. I mean, it's so the, the jobs come and go. Um, and so with my, specifically with my international artists, I've always, I've told them as of late, the past couple of years, I'm like, as soon as I hire you, get your paperwork in. Mm-hmm. Like, because we send, ARP sends a ton of paperwork. I'm like, get all of that in. Let's make sure that it is validated. You know, they've got the, the, the team has gotten it because yep. they're outsourcing and get it all in. And then as soon as this, I approve the sketch, I actually want you to go ahead and invoice it. And then all on my end, I'll, I'll sign off on it just so that you can, you know, we can get this ball rolling. Because if you wait too long, if you wait till the end, you're going to be expecting that money in like 15, 20 days. I guarantee you're not going to get it. So let me mm-hmm. just help you help, you know, let me help you by getting this, getting this, um, getting this going. Right. And so that's what I do. And then and for artists, new artists too, I'll tell them the same thing, even if, you know, they're, they're domestic, because it's unfortunate that companies are taking a, taking a long time to pay people. I don't quite mm-hmm. understand why it takes so long, but it does. Um, and so I'm, I try to do my best to make sure that individuals get paid in a timely yeah. fashion. I, I've definitely heard every excuse under the sun, whether it's just like, you know, oh, like that person in accounting that got your invoice, it was on their desk, but they got fired. Or, mm-hmm. uh, oh, they went on vacation, they'll mm-hmm. handle it in two weeks. Like, two weeks? Come mm-hmm. on. Like, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? Or I've heard, like, it, you know, the paperwork got lost, but it's an email, so how did it get lost? And, you know, or just like, uh, I, my first client ever, first magazine client, um, I, I I definitely think it was a cash flow issue because I didn't get paid for like six months. Oh and wow! I you know 
basically was on the phone with him like every other week being like, where's the wow. check? Where's the money? Like, yeah. Pay me. Yeah. That kind of thing. And, you know, if I didn't like work for like a couple other clients, like mm-hmm. after that, I would have been just soured and mm-hmm. just done with mm-hmm. being an illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, 100 uh, percent. So. At, so, you know, you have uh, you also work as a freelance designer outside of AARP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, what what is it like being a freelancer mm-hmm. uh, like outside of AARP? Is the grass greener on the other side or do you like to just you know, work, you know, in a very structured environment and then also have a bunch of other projects where you can be more creative and, uh, and all that. Like, I'd love to hear more of your experience as a freelance designer. Yeah, I'm a little all over the place. Um, Mm -hmm. and I can't say that one is better than the other. I think it is nice to have the structure versus they're more organic, like free flowing. I will say though, that not all my freelance projects have allowed me to be super creative in the way that I would like, you know, would necessarily want to, um, like, I don't have full autonomy, I guess, so to speak. Um, but I, what I like about, the, about freelance is that I feel like I've kind of dipped my toe in a variety of different areas. So that's what's been exciting. It's been a yeah. different challenge every time. So, you know, whether it's um, book design, which book design, was, book design has, been in, has been very interesting. Like, I've mm-hmm. worked with a couple of major publishers now, and, I, and they all do things different, even though I'm going to just throw it out. I'm just going to say it. It's a little, the system is a little antiquated. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but that's been interesting. It's, it, it's different from, from editorial, you know, media publishing. Um, and that I didn't, I didn't know how different it would be, and it, and it is. Um, and like I said, every publishing house does things just a little bit different. Um, but it's been great to see, just kind of have that experience of that. Um, and then getting some, some titles underneath my belt, um, as it relates to like, you know, footwear design, that's a whole nother area where it was brand new to me. Um, I'd always loved fashion, but, um, the fashion world operates, navigates, you know, uh, different from, from media and publications. Um, so having that experience was like, okay, I'm here for the ride. Let's see, you know, but I was, I think in all of these areas outside of editorial, I kind of moved trepidation. Tribidiously, <laughs> yeah. I move. It's a word. It's a word. Um, I move. I move in a way that's like kind of free, but also kind of with some guardrails because it's mm-hmm. not an area that I'm. Those areas aren't areas that I'm an expert in. I realize that I'm just like you know, I'm just kind of going through the motions. So I stick my toe in it. I see how you know how deep it is, um, and then if I get the opportunity again, then I have like more intel. You know, I have we'll we'll have gotten some more resources and some more references. Um, but yeah, so doing that, doing you know, footwear has been has been fun. Um, do you know, partnering with HP was great. Um, doing some working with some nonprofits was you know was even other nonprofits much smaller than ARP has been exciting. I will say that I think it's the variety of projects that I get the opportunity to work on that keeps me going. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ARP definitely is creative. Um, you know, I have really long hours with them. I'm not going to pretend like it like I work a nine to five because yeah. I don't. Um, and parts of it are very gratifying. Uh, I also use some of the skill set, some of the skills that I've learned from AARP and I apply them to some of the, the freelance projects I work on and vice versa. Right. And I think having that variety has helped make me, I keep saying what more well-rounded, but it's helped me make, help me be mm-hmm. more well-rounded. Um, I've been able to see how, you know, how creative is applied to the various platforms and other, uh, genres of, of, um, of design. And that's been, that's been exciting. But yeah, I mean, I burn, I'll be honest, I burn the candle at both ends. 
I do. And there's many nights where I'm like, I cannot believe I'm doing this, but we're going to see it through. So I get my water or my rosé, one or the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mm-hmm. put some moisturizer on, I add, mm-hmm. put on my compression socks and get, and get to it. So, right. Um, I mean, on top of that, I mean, you know, for 14 years, you've worked with AIGA uh, and mm-hmm. also the DC chapter of it mm-hmm. uh, on their diversity and inclusion. Yep. Um, could, can you talk about like your volunteer work uh, within yeah. that organization? Yeah. So I have to say, I have to give a lot of props to AIGA in general, because um, mm-hmm. I came, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, as we talked, discussed earlier, I came immediately into design through media, through editorial and AIGA, the organization is the Professional Association for Design. It's enco- it encompasses all areas of design mainly graphic design, web, interactive, illustration, mm-hmm. and a little bit of photography. It goes, be, goes beyond that, um, but those are the primary um, areas. So me being in media, uh, editorial, and not having AIGA at my school, not getting an AIGA when I got out of school, um, I was unfamiliar with the, with the organization. Upon coming to D.C., my um, colleagues were part of it. And I got, uh, you know, to experience like the programming and I saw there was, you know, diverse programming, diverse programming in the sense that like it wasn't media. I was so used to society of news design, society of publication design. I was I was fortunate. I was glad to see that, like, there was an organization that supported and championed all areas of design. So um, I can and then also I moved, was moving to the D.C. area and I wasn't familiar with it. And I love that my D.C. chapter had events all over the area. So in, two, in part, they helped me um, um, learn the city because events mm-hmm. would be at different studios or different spaces. And so I'd have to figure out how to get there via metro or, you know, driving or walking and so on and so forth. So I have to give them props and kudos for helping me nav- learn the city of D.C. and then exposing me to other, are- other areas of design, the hot shot studios that are not just that are not just known locally, but are also known, you know, uh, domestically and, and some international internationally. So um, that's that's been great. Being able to volunteer with the organization at the local level and then also at the national level was also huge because volunteering at the national level. Now I'm now I'm meeting individuals that are in in all areas of design, you know, across the country and again, also internationally. So Mm -hmm. um, that was something that like my day job, my my media job couldn't give me, wasn't giving me. Um, And so I, I really looked forward to those opportunities to be, you know, with my with my AIJ peers. Now, at some point. Um, because I got so excited and, you know, when you have an organization that's based on volunteers, they're always looking for those that are the most enthusiastic. And mm-hmm. so I, I sh- expressed that not realizing that like that was going to turn into a four year AIGA DC, you know, board commitment. And so when I joined the board, um, my first, I remember my first, um, I was a programming coordinator and my first job was to work with, uh, was to produce an event where Debbie Millman was the moderator, um, where Mara, Mara, uh, Mara Kalman, no, Mara Cullen, who was the like creative director at, I think she was at Hallmark before going to Coke. Like she was uh-huh. there. Daryl and Reith was a creative director at Campbell Soup. And then there was like one other person. So I had these like powerhouse people. I had no idea. I knew their brands. I knew their brands very mm-hmm. well, but I didn't know them as individuals. And that was like my first event that I had to produce a panel of it. And I, it was it was it was my first event. And then on top of that, it was the first event um, 
that the night of that event, I learned that my boss was was going to good house good housekeeping. Mm-hmm. So it was like there was a lot going on. But um, yeah, I produced that event, and then I went on to do to lead a, a competition, and then from there I got into. They asked me to do the be a mentoring chair, and so I, I took a year to like learn figure out mentoring. Launched a, a, a mentoring program with my friend, fellow colleague, my the fellow board member and um, colleague um, Carrie Sarenbach. We launched a, a mentoring program that to mm-hmm. this day is still in effect. Um, it's going on, I think, 12 years now. We were present for 10 years. Um, and then we became advisors. Uh, and then um, run, we ran a couple of mentor programs, became the strategic partners director, and then got into DEI um, and became the chapter's DEI person. And then joined the task force, the national task force. Um, and then for the past six or seven years, I think it's been about that time, I've also overseeing the Design Continuum Fund, which is a scholarship that supports, um, financially supports underrepresented students attending a, co- a, local, a local college or university. Mm-hmm. On top of that, though, um, it's a sister uh, scholarship to AIJ World Studio, which is a national scholarship. And so I sit on the, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be a, a juror for that as well. And that gives money to students, same ethos um, across the country. Mm-hmm. So that is, I told them when I rolled off um, last year in 2021, when I rolled off, I wanted to still be connected to um, the Continuum Fund, Design Continuum Fund, which again is a local initiative, but also to the AIGA World Studio, because that's where scholarship, because that's where I, I felt like I could, I was making an impact and advocating mm-hmm. and seeing these students, you know, um, of all ages, you know, um, uh, coming up. And I think that it's a great scholarship because they really focus on social change, like social responsibility. They want students to not only be going to school for design, illustration or photography, but they also want them to have be, to be aware of um, the social inequalities around them and, 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 and pledge to do something with you know, their talents once upon graduating or while they're in school. Um, and I think that that is smart. Um, I realized also during for both that you don't necessarily have to be the best creative, the best photographer, illustrator, or photographer. You just have to have heart and passion and you'll get to wherever you want. Cause not everybody who's in the creative field is meant to actually be a creative some of them are there to be managers or communicators mm-hmm. or um, uh, uh, art buyers or, you know, like or producers. So not everybody has to be taking not everybody has to take the picture or, you know, have the, the, the tablet, you know, and design. like some of us are better as like product people who are in production or people who are mm-hmm. managers. Um, and some of that can be seen in the bios, I mean, in the statements of purpose that the students send and, and the reference letters that they get from their, you know, from their references. So I like advocating. I like being able to discover those individuals and also encourage them to keep going, whatever their practice is. Um, and then, you know, hope that they don't remember the people who, you know, gave them some money to, to, to move on to the next thing. So that's, yeah, so... You've also spent time mentoring at least or over 60 uh, young designers. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's the advice that you'd give to people who are interested in mentoring uh, other creative people on like how to approach it? 
Yeah, I would say as far as mentoring, <clears throat> if you want to be a mentor, I think um, you should first ask yourself, do you have the patience? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you have the time? Um, and can you not make it about you all the time? Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. a lot of mentors, a lot of prospective mentors get caught up in wanting to just share their story and only um, and only encourage, you know, the mentee to do it the way they did it. And now there's just so many ways to achieve one's dreams or to execute something. So you have to, as a mentor, be open to working with that student to, na- or, excuse me, not student, working with that mentee to navigate, you know, uh, their challenges and help them get to where they are. And a mentee does not necessarily have to be um, younger to old. Like it's, it's not an age thing. So, right. you know, you could, your mentee could be your age. They could just be somebody who's just getting into the profession. That's a mentee. They can also be older, you know, and it can work, work the other way. Um, so I would say like, again, just like being open, open to having conversations, uh, being open to opening up your Rolodex um, or your contacts to also connect them with other people, having the patience, being an advocate, uh, being um, uh, a devil's advocate to help them see that like, hey, this is what you're thinking may not work. So let's try this. Or what happens if this happens? So being a sounding board is always good. Being a cheerleader. Like there's just, there's a number of things that you have to take into consideration, but you, you can't put, it it can't be about you. It has to be Mm -hmm. about them. Um, And just being diligent, being diligent and persistent throughout the entire process. And then as a mentee, I think it's important for you to identify what your goals are Mm -hmm. so that you're not wasting somebody's time. Um, I think the program that we created, um, that Carrie and I created, it was a four month program. It's called Shine. And it was a four month peer to peer program. We paired one student. We, we pair, excuse me, I keep saying student. One. It's interchangeable. Um, mentee, student. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interchangeable. Okay. So one, um, we prepared one uh, emerging um, individual with uh, somebody who was professional. And we did that for, you know, did that for a month. And that gave the, they gave the mentee an opportunity to also ask all the questions that they wanted to ask. You know, they didn't have to worry about, you know, um, is it going to appear on their, um, in their review? You know, are they going to be judged? So on and so forth. So um, we try to drill down, double down on that and let people know, like, this is your opportunity to try whatever skills you want to try. If you decide, if you want to be a web designer, but you're not one, you know, we'll, we can match you with somebody that is, and they can show you the basic steps. So like, yeah, you can go take a class if you want to want to, but this person also might be able to have some skills or some shortcuts that might help you get there a little bit faster or some tips to help you navigate the class. So we did that. And then we decided, we said, you know what? And if you have a, if the relationship continues beyond that, that's great. You know, like it's not, this is business. As far as I'm concerned, a mentorship in general, is just business. It's, it's, it's somewhat transactional. They're not there to be your friend. They're there to help you get to the next chapter, you know, of your career or of your life. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think as a mentee, you have to identify what your goal is, um, what you want to get out of this relationship, and then go forth with that, knowing that like the person might have limited time, um, but that this is what you're asking for. So. What are you looking forward to this year and next year? working as a designer and what is it that you're looking forward to, uh, in your personal life? Ooh, those are good questions. I'm not like, okay, so I'm just, people who know me know that I am not lofty. I don't have like, you know, 
these like grandiose, grandiose ideas and stuff. I'm pretty basic. Um, mm-hmm. So travel is definitely going to be one of those things. Um, yeah. No, but I, w- I would like to, I like the idea of, of exploring different genres within the creative space. So I'd be looking, continuously looking for new opportunities to collaborate with um, either with brands or individuals to create something substantial. Um, I look forward to continuously giving back um, in some form or fashion, mm-hmm. whether definitely as it, as I said, as it relates to the scholarship, but also I want to support artists by um, purchasing artwork. <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to build my, I want to build my collection as I, I want to build my art collection. Um, I feel like I go to, I, I go to a lot of museums and, and go to a lot of shows, but mm-hmm. I don't always like pull the trigger and acquire the art. So, mm-hmm. so the next two years, next couple of years, like I want to um, support artists, not just by going to emerging artist shows, but also like purchasing what I'm seeing, you know? Um, so that's, that's definitely something that I want to do. Um, and then figuring out how to just like, how to balance, mm-hmm. how to like really um, carve out space to just focus on me. I think mm-hmm. I do a lot of supporting of other individuals, whether it's for work or like I said, out in the field with, you know, with, with mm-hmm. emerging artists and creatives and whatnot. Um, even the traveling part, I, I'm al- almost always with somebody else or seeing somebody at the other end. Um, and I have not embraced, I have not revisited my solo travel, meaning like mm-hmm. where it's just me. The last time I did that, I went to Ecuador and it was like at the beginning of when I was doing the sub brands, launching the sub brands and I needed a break. So I need to figure out how to create some space where I can, um, space and time where I can just like kind of sit and reflect on just me and the work that I'm doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they call it self-care. It's a version of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I need to do that and just like, just slow down just, just Mm -hmm. a tad, um, and be one, one with myself. Right. So, um, some of the things you're obsessed with, of course, travel, (laughs) museums Mm -hmm. and galleries, love to start with travel. Uh, it's kind of been a theme that we've been kind of talking a little bit about throughout this whole conversation. Uh, you know, what are some, uh, places that you've been to? Uh, that you want to travel back to uh, again? Oof, that is tough. <laughs> um, yeah, travel is definitely is in my DNA. That's for sure, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, I thoroughly, Morocco was a place I really enjoyed. Um, right. I thought that was like just the culture, the history, uh, the food was amazing. So I want to get, I want to go back to Morocco, but I think that I would love to, because I spent eight days there, I actually would like to go to other uh, areas in um, at, mm. in Africa. So I'm looking to go to like Senegal. Um, I want to go to Namibia because that's that's really a, um, high on my list because I used to work with cheetahs at the National Zoo many years ago. <laughs> I didn't know, know that. Yeah, it's so amazing. I, yeah, fun fact. Um, I used to <laughs> I used to work with cheetahs. I was here when they um, when they when the National Zoo birth had two litters. Um, of cheetah pups. It was the first time in like 118 years that they had had like, you know, pups. Uh, I mean, cheetah. Yeah. And, um, and so Namibia is like the, is the, the biggest city that, uh, biggest city with the highest con- uh, preservation efforts. And so I thought, you know what, that's probably a place I should visit and like mm-hmm. either volunteer or just be m- amongst my people, my, my cheetah people. Um, so I want to do that. Um, and you know do safari and stuff like that so i wanted to explore africa um i love whatever reason i am so drawn to um south america 
Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Like, I cannot, I just keep getting pulled back there. I don't mm-hmm. speak Spanish fluently, but I keep finding myself there. Mm-hmm. Um, and high on my list is like, is Chile. Um, and I, again, I don't know why, but I just, every year it's like, okay, I'm going, I'm going to go. And I never get there. I end up going to some other country in, in, in yeah. South America. So um, I'm not sure what that's all about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've never been to Buenos Aires in Argentina, but I have like some loose acquaintances down there and I kind of want to go down and hang out. It, it seems like it's a fun time down there. You should come. Um, I'm going next week. I mean, I can't go next week, but okay. uh, I'm going to San Francisco next week. Uh, okay. It's a whole other place. It's going to be raining all week. Oh, no. I know. I'm going to have to go back another time when it's not. Because I've never been yeah. to San Francisco before. So. Oh, you'll love it. Are you going, yeah. for, are you going for pleasure or for work? Uh, or both? Uh, I mean, I'm not working. so. Yeah, but it, you could have had... I mean, I phrase it as like, you could have a collaboration or something that you right, were doing. And right, it, that would right. be work. I mean, I, I'm definitely going out to just hang out. I, okay. I guess. So it's, it's kind of for pleasure. So... Okay. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I, I want to go back another time when it's not raining, raining. all the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, I want to go back to Budapest. I think mm-hmm. that that was like amazing when I was there. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to Prague. Uh, it feels like you're living in like a real life Disneyland like area with all of the really decorative buildings and yeah. the history and and everything um, that's so wild you went to budapest i i i totally forgot. i actually remember you went to, going to budapest you yeah. you did a travel diary right yeah i was i was planning on doing something uh i was planning on doing something with thrillist and then uh well i got laid off okay <laughs> after, I, the, after the trip so i was like oh well i guess yeah. i'm not i guess i'm not doing a, a thing for thrillist uh after this trip now no but you could do that for yourself i actually remember mm-hmm. you doing that and now that you say that i'm like we I should ask you ask you about that because going to Berlin in December, mm-hmm. the person I was going to visit got a job in Budapest for like a week, and so mm-hmm. they were like they called and they were like, "Hey, I know you're coming, but can do you mind going to Budapest when you get here?" And I was like, "Okay." So as soon as I landed, the very next day we went to Budapest, and I was there for a week. And I had never it wasn't on my it had, was not on my list at all. Like I never. And never thought I was, I don't know, I never thought about it. And then here I am there and yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a great city. Like it's so, it's pretty and mm-hmm. um, it rains, like you said, it, well, you said that about San Francisco, but it was raining while yeah. I was there, it was cold, but we still got out and did a lot of stuff. Yo, I got to say, I was like trying for the life of me trying to find chapstick in that city. <laughs> that city was so dry. Yes. I, I was just drying out every. I was like, I didn't imagine if I knew, I would have brought it. Oh my god, I need lotion. Like it is so funny you should say that because um, my friend was working on was was filming was mm-hmm. part of a crew filming and they were filming at night and so it was like three p.m. to like one or something and they would come back and they'd be like, my face is like on fire. It's so cold and it's dry and his lips would be all dry. And I was like, listen, I was like, I got some chapstick. I don't know why I had chapstick in my bag. I had chapstick and I was like, take one, use one of these. And so I gave him chapstick and I gave him Eucerin Mm -hmm. and it changed his life. It changed his whole rest of his life that when I, so much that when I got ready to leave, I was like, you just, you 
you, you keep this. Like, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get some when I get back to the U.S. Because it was, to your point, it was very dry. Yeah. Um, I will say the same thing was actually in Morocco, it was dry as well. I think I broke every single nail and then some. I think like yeah. my nail bed is like goes all the way back to my cuticles because it was just so dry. Right. But that's how city, some cities are, mm-hmm. you know. Did you get to the pinball museum? Uh, in Budapest? In, no, uh, no, I haven't. I didn't know that I was there. I thought you were talking about like, Ash, you know, uh, Asbury Park. And I'm like, no, it's no, on my list of things to do because I live in New York City. No. <laughs> just, you know, drive over there and hang out. But no, I didn't know that. I, you know, uh, Prague has a lot of like weird little museums. Mm-hmm. Like they have an uh, Apple computer museum. <laughs> That's crazy. They I mean, have, they have like they, they have like multiple like old Macs on display. What? They have... Uh, a portrait of Steve Jobs in like keyboard keys, yeah, and everything. It's it was wild. I also went to like a torture museum that was like really cool. Yeah, um, they have a lot of like weird little museums. There's like a museum that had like sketches and um, you know uh, painted painted sketches of like. It was just like Muka, Salvador Dali, and Andy Warhol, like three Random. like top like artists that like every art school like you know kid has like a you know a poster on their wall. Yeah. Up. I'm like, I mean, Why? when in Prague, you know, I have no idea, but it was like really, it was like really fun, like to kind of like, go there and experience it all and uh, just really hang out. The one city that I kind of I, I got like a really uh, bad impression of and I want to go back to uh, is Vienna. Uh, oh. Like so many restaurants have strict dress codes. Oh. And like, look, I was going over there in the freaking summer. I, it's freaking hot. Yeah. And so like there were some amazing places that I didn't go into because I wasn't dressed smart casual. I was wow. like wearing like like a shirt and shorts or even like a button up shirt and shorts. Yeah. And they're like, you got to have pants on and you got to have like a different pair of shoes on. And I'm like, oh, that's so fascinating. I had so, no idea. So when I go back, if I go back, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to pack better uh, when I go back to, you know, check it all out. Uh, Who knew? I know. I know. But I mean, it, it's a very posh city. Yeah. When I went, okay, so back in my day, it was a mm-hmm. long time ago. When I, was, when I lived in Berlin, actually, um, we did a family trip to Vienna. But when we did, it was um, during the winter. So you had mm-hmm. to wear pants. Like, there was no way around yeah. that. Um, and we, like, skied and stuff. But that was, I mean, that was then. I, I can't imagine going to a city where, like, you know, you, every, other, every other restaurant or every other establishment, you have to dress a certain way. Like, that's too much. That's too much pressure. Yeah, I know. And there was this one bar that was like uh, designed by like a famous architect that's like known in Vienna. And I really wanted to check it out, but I could only like peer through the outside. The doorman wouldn't let me in. And I'm like, come on. It's like, it's like 98 degrees, like Fahrenheit, humidity high. Like, I'm not going to like. I don't know. I, I'm just going to like, you know, take some cotton suits with me and oh. just try, you know, do that out. If I ever go back in the summertime, yeah, I, I'll try to maybe like some, some, some 
time in the future. But I know, uh, like a friend of mine and I, we have like this kind of like handshake agreement that we're going to try to go to Italy in 2024. Oh, yeah. We're going to save up, you know, do some things piecemeal, like mm-hmm. pay for the plane ticket, which is the most expensive thing mm-hmm. first. And then, mm-hmm. you know, then we're going to really plan out our route and all that. And so that's going to be a lot of fun uh, in the future. That will that will definitely be. I but, think, yeah. No, Italy. Um, no, Italy is a good it's a good time. I guess depending on where you, where you go. I haven't been to a lot of places in Italy, but one of I think a highlight for me last year was actually I had one goal as far as like exhibits, mm-hmm. and it was to get to um, to Venice for the Biennale. Right. Um, Simone Lee was the woman representing the. The, only, the first black woman to represent the U.S. at the Venice Biennale. And um, I love her work so much that I, I was like, I was like, I, when I found out in March, I was like, I got to figure out how to go. I don't like, I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. You know, I don't know if I'm going to have time off, but like I'm getting there. And, um, and it turned out like, you, you know, manifested it and just was, and I doubled down and, and went and it was everything that it, her exhibit and some other exhibits and experiences were, there was, exactly right. what i wanted it to be so i so if that's where you want to go then for sure like I mean, italy, make it happen and you, think, and you know what there's so many artists that are in italy like yeah, so mean, many artist friends I, I i have uh i have at least two friends that live in milan yeah um that i, I definitely want to visit um like rent some vespas and just kind of go out and just do that so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, while we're on the topic of uh, museums and galleries, I, I know not only from your Instagram, but also just like hanging with you, like you go to a lot of exhibits and such. Um, yeah. I do want to mention um, the one time we were supposed to hang out at the Met. Yes. We were supposed to go to, this was like in the 2010s. It was the Punk to Couture show. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up going with... Uh, Nicole your, Crowder. Your, yeah, Nicole. And uh, we went through the exhibit. It was a very interesting exhibit to see how it started from just whatever to going high fashion. And at the very end, we ended up seeing James Franco just oh, chilling. Oh, I don't know why I missed that part. <laughs> now I'm like bummed. I, yeah, I, I, I remember forget, that. I think something came up, uh, wh- whether it's like work or some no, other thing. No, I had or, the bag. Remember, I had my suitcase. I had my. Yeah. I had a carry-on. I couldn't bring it in, so I had to drop oh. it off at a friend's down the street um i couldn't bring my luggage in interesting and then yeah, yeah they, you, they couldn't check it at, at the thing or nothing yeah i think there was something about that it was something about i don't know if it was too big there was something about that about my luggage or maybe yeah. it was either that or i was n- nervous about bringing it in it was one of the two but i i okay. remember going specifically i called a friend and i was like hey can i leave my luggage at your at your mm-hmm. place and she said yeah so i had to I don't even remember going all the way in. I just remember like seeing you saying hi and then you and Nicole went in and then I, you know, I went off to, to drop it off and then I, I didn't see you all again or I didn't yep. see you again rather. Yeah. yeah. No, not for a while. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm around. Uh, so, I mean, uh, yeah, it was just a weird experience seeing James <laughs> Franco just hanging out with like, you know, two or three ladies, just whatever. And I'm like, here he is. All right. Here he, he said, is. Yeah. He said, I like art too. Yeah. I like fashion. I mean, he, he, he comes off as like a cultured guy and then he goes and he's, then later on we're like, oh, you're actually kind of a creep. So yeah. here we are. Uh, anyway, what are some of your favorite um, gallery exhibits or museum exhibits that you've been to in the past year? Yeah. Um, 
So Simone Lee definitely uh, been mm-hmm. a spy ally that's like takes the cake. Um, that was a yep. that was experience. I've been loving what Brooklyn Museum has been doing. I have to oh, say, yeah. um, they had a killer Dior show that ended that actually wrapped up in twin, like December. I think it was December or January twenty twenty. Is it December twenty twenty two or it wrapped in January twenty? Either December twenty twenty one or it wrapped in January twenty twenty two. But I went to that in December and I loved it. It was just, it was mm-hmm. expansive. It was huge. Um, so that one, but then they came back with like, uh, a Andy Warhol exhibit that was awesome. Um, and I got to, what I liked about that one at the Brooklyn Museum over the summer was that mm-hmm. I got, I had been to Andy Warhol's museum in Pittsburgh. Um, and I just, you know, fell in love with everything, the architecture, the floors is everything they had. Um, but I liked the Brooklyn Museum one because for the first time I felt like I was getting um, I was being exposed and educated on his role, his, his, um, religious side. I feel like I just, I, all the other experiences, all the other work I'd seen from him has just had been his pop art, you know, his relationship with Basquiat and some other individuals, but like I had not, I wasn't 100% familiar with his, with, I knew he was Catholic, but I I wasn't fully understanding like how he came to be, like what his relationship was and his mom's role and all of that. And so I thought the Brooklyn Museum did a great job of like highlighting that, talking about that. Um, So, so Andy Warhol um, was a great one. They also had Cause, which I thought was good. I I knew Cause's work, but I Mm -hmm. had not, you know, didn't follow him or anything. And so I loved going back for that one. Um, those two. And then most recently they, they blew out the Mugler show. There was a Terry Mugler show. Um, so I saw that and I thought that was great. I love, I love the Brooklyn museum because they have this space and they're very intentional. Um, Mm -hmm. and I specifically loved the Mugler show this year, not just because of all the, the incredible body of work they had and the fact like they had photography of photographers that I had seen in Berlin when I was there over the summer, Helmut Newton, I mean, Helton, Helmut, Newton. Yes. Um, like I'd see, been to his museum. And so it was like, it was nice to see like his work there at, at, um, at the Mugler show. But the Mugler show was the only show that I've ever seen that at the end, they had a photo of the staff that worked on it. And they had a list of the credits of everybody involved with the Mugler show. Wow. So like the graphic designers, you know, the accountant, like anybody who was affiliated with that show got a credit. They had two placards and then they had like a picture of like, um, I guess whoever was around, you know, the day they took this, uh, took a photo. It's almost like a class picture. And I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, we all know that museums require a lot of work. It's not just the curator that's working on all this. It's, it's all the people that are behind the scenes that are doing PR, that are, the, you know, the interns. There's, a, there's a, a slew of people. And I love the fact that they credited that, that they had at the end. And you could walk by it and be dismissive, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But if you actually cared, you would stop and, you know, just kind of look at all the people that were involved. And I just I thought that was brilliant. Um, so, so Brooklyn Museum, the Mucula show in particular, is a, gets an mm-hmm. A-plus in my book. For, for that reason alone. I think crediting uh, artists and creatives is important. They did the work. Why not? Um, so Mugler, um, I would say Mugler and, and um, Mugler and Andy Warhol were probably my two favorites from the Brooklyn Museum. Right. Cause came in after that. Um, Simone Lee. Um, there did was, you end up seeing the, the Virgil show at Brooklyn Museum? I didn't see the Virgil show because I saw it in Chicago, um, like a Okay. A year or two prior. So I, I, but I love Antoine Sargent, who was a curator of that exhibit. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at the, he, so I almost went, but I was like, I'm going to hold out. 
I did see the David LaChapelle show at um, the Photographiska, or however you pronounce it. Yeah. Yes. And that was kind of cool because, again, he was, I, I felt like I was seeing, I was familiar with his Rolling Stones work and some of the, the bigger, the stuff he did that involved celebrities. But there were, there was, there were works from his um, jaunts to, I think it was Hawaii and some other mm-hmm. places that was, was not, you know, celebrity related. And he also has a relationship with, uh, with, with religion that I felt like I wasn't always, I wasn't familiar with. So being able to see that too at large scale was great. Um, so I enjoyed that one. Plus they have a, that museum has a great bar, like a great yeah. little, like, and you can bring drinks and, and stuff up. I was like, okay, I, I'll, be, I'll be back. That was my first time going to that one. So I, um, I've only cool. been once because it's a little on the expensive side to go see the shows there. That's um, it. Compared to like a lot of other places where it's like 10, 25 bucks at the, t- at the most. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I remember it being a little expensive to going and seeing a show there. Yeah, well, and I agree, actually. I mean, I made a day out of, I saw that in Mugler, and I, I yeah. knew those two I was committing to, and that mm-hmm. was it. But I can see that adds up, oops, their membership is a little high. Yep. Um, but I guess you got to pay for that awesome building. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite museums, though, is the Rubel Museum. Um, and Steve, people might know Steve Rubel, who was behind Studio 54. Mm-hmm. His brother, um, his brother and his his brother and his brother's wife um, opened up the Rubel Museum and their kids also are very much part of it. Um, and so I've been going to the Rubel Museum every year, um, every year since I started, started going to Art Basel in December um, to see what they have acquired and what's on display. And I've never been disappointed, never, ever been disappointed with what they have. And they recently opened up their D.C. location um, and it was great to go. They opened it up like two months ago and I, mm-hmm. I went to see like what it was, you know, where one, where it was located, um, but two, what their works look like. And it was kind of it was it was cool to see that works that and I was reminded that when you go to Art Basel and some of these shows, they are collectors are actually collecting and they're seeing exactly what you see. And so as I walked through, I was like, oh, my gosh, I remember seeing this and that and this and that you know, at Art Basel represented by these galleries and now the Rubels own it and it's here in, you know, this DC location or going in the rooms and saying like, oh, I remember when they had this on display at the Miami location a couple of years ago. So I, I, I love their eye. They, they collect um, some of my favorite artists um, and it's a wide swath of individuals. Um, they're very, they're into diversity and inclusion. So, you know, the artists are, they're all it's a wide, again, a wide swath um, of different gender, sexuality, so on and so mm-hmm. forth, and, uh, and scale. And so, yeah, that, I feel like that's probably like one of my top, top museums to visit yeah. frequent every year. Really great stuff. Yeah, some, some of my favorites, um, or, you know, at the very beginning of 2022, um, I went to the Whitney Biennial. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's a, like a usual thing that I go to every two years. Um, I, I thought that this show was interesting. Um, for what I, reason? I thought, um, I, I felt like there was, like, I felt like the theme wasn't really clear. Together. Yeah. yeah. Like in years past, it was pretty clear, but, uh, I think they, they separated it in like light and dark. Uh, uh if I remember, okay. uh, from that. And I was like, okay fine whatever but uh but yeah i thought that the work uh was was good there wasn't anything i th- i felt like there's only like one piece that really like sticks to my brain 
as something that I felt like really attached to. And there's like a few other standouts that I'm like, it's kind of weird. Like there was a, a sculpture by an artist. I, I don't remember what the name is, but the entire sculpture was this uh, uh, hooded figure. And the hood was created by bullet casings oh. and how it's kind of draped over a figure as they're trying to like walk through. Oh, wow. The That's exhibit. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was like really great. There was um, some like anti Amazon piece where it was like a oh. severed arm with the Amazon logo tattooed and it was like twitching. Oh, okay. I was like, that's weird. And then yeah. there, I think probably outside of that, uh, just purely out of joy, my favorite. So, you know, um, uh, the, like a duck that has like water in it and like you kind of like press it forward and it automatically because of gravity just kind of always tips down to like, Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Like that no. toy. Oh man. Uh, I don't really know how I to look I, it up though. I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, <laughs> and so I have like a proper name for it. Okay. Uh, duck. That and I can look it up too. Duck toy. Duck toy. That has water in it and <laughs> tips. And tips. Yes. The original drinking bird is the is uh what it's called. Drinking bird. Okay, I'm looking. I'm looking this up. It has right a little now. top hat. Drinking, okay, let me look this up really quick, because that and, is interesting. Anyway, so this exhibit had one of those, but it was like six feet tall. Oh! It was huge. huge. Oh, yes. Okay, yes, I see it. Yeah. And I was like, that's peculiar. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, and then lastly, there was uh, these like bronze sculptures of, I want to say like working class black men like that were on that were like that's like sitting outside and okay. like they're weathered over time because of rain and stuff and it just creates this like interesting effect on them as well so you know that was like the first exhibit that like really wowed me at the beginning of the year and then in may uh i saw the wonder woman exhibit at the jeffrey uh ditch gallery because oh yeah Sh- yeah shima goldman had uh yes. had uh pieces in that yep and I really loved how everyone in that show, uh, like, all, I love all the work, and I love the approach of everyone's, like, kind of narratives uh, that are kind of, like, you know, through it and the things that are really important to them, whether mm-hmm. it's about their immigration story or about being a woman or, uh, you know, about, like, histories or some kind of, uh, you know, fictional story that they're writing about themselves, yeah. uh, and, like, some kind of, like... Uh, something psychedelic or I don't know. It was like a really fun show. And yeah. I, I, and like also just seeing the different mediums and the approach mm-hmm. of using the diversity mediums. of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was such a grand show. Uh, and lastly, uh, most recently I got to see, uh, uh, I went to the Guggenheim and I got mm-hmm. to see the, uh, Nick cave exhibit. Oh yes. They have the cave. There. Yep. Um, and uh, Alex Katz also has a bunch of work up. I yep. ended up seeing um, all of their printmaking work uh, like eight, seven or eight, nine years ago. And uh, when I was up in Boston at the MFA and I really prefer the printmaking work over the paintings. Yeah. 
Sometimes it's like that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I guess it's because uh, in that time of my life and also in this time of my life, I find myself gravitating toward, you know, seeing how people use the graphic shapes and Mm -hmm. forms and line. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel like Alex's work is really strong when it comes to drawing and Mm -hmm. everything. Um, Not that I'm ever going to have an exhibit at the Guggenheim, but don't say that. The the one thing that I will say, well, I'm, I'm, I want to have an, I want to have a retrospect at the MoMA. That's, that's been my thing for years. But anyway, what I will say is, is that um, I really prefer Alex's work from like the seventies through the nineties. The, the work that he's been doing in the past 10 to 20 years is just not my flavor. Mm-hmm. And That's I find okay. it very interesting to see, like, the work that they did in, like, the 50s and, you know, in early 60s and how the work has changed and evolved. Yep. And it's interesting to see how, like, some of your favorite artists or that you kind of grew up with, they kind of evolve in a way that you don't like anymore and you want them yep. to kind of do the old stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh but that's just not how things are. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Andrew Wyeth has always been like about improving their craft up until like yep. the days until they died. Uh, their work has always been just improving on the thing that not only they've been successful at, but also just proving that craft. And I feel like uh, Alex Katz really uh, took a look at the old work and is trying to go in a more fluid way of approaching yeah. their work. And I, it's just not my, my thing. Uh, but yeah. seeing Nick Cave's work was amazing because all I've ever known Nick Cave for prior to this experience was he got commissioned by uh, the MTA to have a bunch of uh, performers going and dancing at Grand Central Station. And oh. I got to see that. Uh, oh. One of the, of the time performances yeah. of like, you know, these kind of like horse looking like creatures yeah. or something. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he's, he's a, a performance abstract. artist. This is all I know of this person. I'm never going to Google this person at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, wow. And I, and, then, and I know him for the static, not for yeah. the performance. Yeah. And then I'm like, all right, this is all I know. And this is really cool to reference from. Yeah. And like, you know, here we, here we are many years later. I'm going and seeing this exhibit and seeing like themes about racism and about yeah. perception of mm-hmm. being a black person from the Midwest yep. uh, about, you know, making an artwork an ode to his father and mm-hmm. reflecting on their religion and their work as like a farmer or something or, and I'm just like, why have I been sleeping on Nick cave? Like all this time. Because there's just so much out there. And yeah. because he was, to your point, you knew him as a performance artist and yep. kind of like, you know, kind of wrote him off, you know, not as a static, you know, artist. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is still he's still out there. He's still, yep. you know, still producing. It's funny. Yeah, I feel like some artists evolve, um, continue to evolve their work and, and sometimes go in a direction that we're not you're not necessarily keen on. And then mm-hmm. others just kind of like, nope, I'm going to own this space and I'm just going to continue yeah. doing what I'm doing. I feel like Sam Gilliam was before he passed in May um, was one of those or June, maybe late May, early June of 2022. I feel like he was one of those people who like um, he was like, I'm just going to evolve my practice. Like I'm doing, you know, I'm doing this like 
it's not drip. Well, he was doing the drip cloths like 20 years ago, but like, yeah. then he started, you know, moved into campuses and then it, and then he had this like kind of Jackson Pollock kind of thing where it just was like, you know, all these, all this color and stuff. And I feel like he just, he evolved what he was doing, but didn't lose sight or hope of like where his, he didn't lose his foundation of color and appreciation. Um, he just kind of tweaked the medium in which it showed up. Mm-hmm. Whereas others, like you say, go completely left. You know, where it's like, wait, that if you put the work next to each other, you wouldn't think it was the same artist. Um, and I guess mm-hmm. it just kind of depends on the style as to which, to like, if you're going to continue to support them or if you're just yeah. going to be like, deuces, I'm just going to hang, I'm just going to, you know, remember and reflect on the work that I do like. I, I kind of, sometimes, uh, especially when it comes to older artists, I kind of view it in the same way of like musicians. Like, you, you, you buy like the records that you really... Uh, enjoy and if you don't like mm-hmm. the new music you always have the old records you can go right. to like it's you know yeah. I always I have all these old you know monograms of artists that I that I like uh, you know and little prints and stuff but you know if they don't like the if I don't like the new stuff then you know, it's you fine yeah. yeah yeah and that's so that's that's totally okay I just I love the fact that people are just are continuing to produce mm-hmm. you know what I mean that they are continuing to like express themselves I just sometimes they'll question like are you doing this are you doing this uh, because it's within you and you just you are looking to be gratified or you're just trying to get this, you know, you have all this, um, you have all of this, um, whatever you're going through, pain or joy, and you just need to get it out. Mm-hmm. Or are you doing this just to make some money, just to get a check? Um, yeah. And I feel like sometimes I've seen works, people's works where I've seen them, you know, a, a, a long a period of time and it just looks like they phoned it in. It just mm-hmm. looks like this is a check. You know, I'm just doing this because I have an obligation to whatever gallery to produce, much like a musician. Um, whereas others have seen them evolve and it looks like their heart is really in it. You know, the story yeah. is there, too. Um, it's not it's not a word salad either to get to understand what it, it, the piece is. You know, it's just it's just a solid piece and it's just their work evolving. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, Diane, what else are you obsessed with? Um, very good question. Mm-hmm. Hard question because mm-hmm. I'm not so sure what I'm obsessed, what I'm currently obsessed with. Um, short term, I was obsessed with getting my kitchen redone. Yeah, because of some not not cosmetic, but because of some issues I've had. So that was my latest obsession for like two months. Still not done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll talk about contractors right now. I'm gonna, you're going to see another whole other side of me. Uh, <laughs> I'm obsessed, though, I think with. Oh, man, Daniel, you just threw me a curveball, and I normally can answer on the spot. Like, mm-hmm. well, you know what? I'm gonna flip it. While I'm thinking, I'm gonna flip it on you. What are you obsessed with? Well, uh, you know, right now I've just been like twiddling my thumbs <laughs> while my motorcycle has been worked on. Okay. Uh, I, I got in an accident uh, oh, back no. in. I mean, it wasn't serious. Let me tell you that. I'm, okay. I'm alive. I'm kicking out all my limbs, all my toes, all my fingers. What happened was I like was driving uh, and I was pulling up to a red light in New York City, of all things. I went on a, this is my big fish story of like 2022. I went on a road trip. No problems. Come back home and uh, someone pulls out of a parallel parking spot and they say they didn't hear me. Oh, no. And they just like, you know their front bumper hits my bike and I just knock over, I lose control. And, um, 
And, you know, uh, I took it to one shop and, you know, I, I mean, I was fine. You know, uh, I, I wear all the gear all the time. And so I took my bike to a shop and they fixed it, quote unquote. Uh, but basically they just like basically re- replaced some stuff, fixed the front end of the bike. And, uh, and then it just, it now has like starting up issues where I'm trying to like fire up the bike and I have to like, uh, pull the throttle, like mm-hmm. just like kind of twist the, twist the throttle as I'm starting it up to get the bike to spark for it to actually move. The other issue is, is that because it's having, you know, sparking issues and all that, I'm like pulling up to like red lights and then just like I'm having erratic throttle and oh, all that. So uh, now I, I now I have it at a different shop that's in Staten Island of all places. And um, it I'm coming up to about like four, almost four weeks now that it's been there and I'm waiting for them to like figure out what the problem is and like fix it oh and gosh. i'm like oh i don't i don't know what the bill is going to be on this yeah and uh so now i'm looking into um i i saw like an instagram ad uh or like more of like a motorcycle group that follow on instagram and they're saying that there's like now uh repair like 101 classes uh being taught so now I'm like in this like new chapter of motorcycle ownership where I'm like, oh, I want to learn all the things about like repairing it because I was just going to be like a, I was going to be like a, just a little prince just taking ooh, it to the ooh. shop for any like little issue or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever and not like really worrying about it because I'm like, oh, oh like yeah. the warrant, I have like a three year warranty on this bike, like it's yeah. crazy and like I just have them fix it and just n- not care how much it yeah. costs and, yeah. and all that, um, and it's gotten to the point where. Uh, I have spent uh, about half the amount of money on that I paid for the bike because I paid for it in cash. Like half the money that I paid for it in like the two years of ownership that I've had it, like in repairs, Uh, whether it be um, just basic, uh, you know, yearly maintenance, like oil changes, fork oil, Mm -hmm. fork seals, all that to, you know, you know, my accident, having them repair stuff and just checking it out and, and all that. And I'm like, I, I feel like there is like a level of maintenance that I, I need to be aware of because, mm-hmm. um, there are certain bikes that are certain age that I know shops don't want to work on them oh, at all. Okay. And, uh, so now I'm just like, all right, well, if I'm going to do this, I guess I just got to like really learn. So, uh, one of the things that I, I've been obsessed with is like, basic maintenance of motorcycles and stuff. So uh, that's like the current thing that I've been just digging into. Um, And also uh, I, you know, starting a podcast obviously. And I, I basically learned all the little things about using uh, audio software and everything. So I was really like learning all that uh, over winter break and everything so it's been a very fun experience uh learning all these like new things yeah. uh, i know that like from like you know in 2020 you know all, i spent a lot of time basically just uh learning new programs i learned how to use after effects and premiere pro and okay uh so you know when i went on my motorcycle trips and stuff because i go up to state new york and drive with a uh, with my club that i'm in uh 
I basically have like a GoPro on and I do the whole trip and I've been making like little super cuts hey, of like oh, little moments. It's been yeah. so much fun. Created an entire Instagram for that. It's, oh my been, it's been a lot of fun. I I have like I, I'm still sitting on I think like four terabytes of like video that I need to cut through to show like my my summer trip that I went. Wow. On. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting though. Yeah. So like video editing and yeah. audio editing, it's like been my like new hobby passion thing. That's good. And you can do it. You're not relying on anybody else, mm-hmm. you know, to do it. And you can do it internally. You don't have to go outside, you know, like mm-hmm. that's no, that's really good. I think as you were talking, I was like, shoot, gosh, I should probably do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I became, I'm not really a list person, but if I do have a list, I do try to check it off. And so mm-hmm. when I was away, one of, so one of the people that I met had a 23 for 23 list um, of just random things, you know, nothing from hard to hard to soft skills, um, yep. the list included. And, and so I finally finished mine, like finished the list this morning because I didn't, I wasn't introduced to it until like late, you know, late in December or yeah, late in December. Is this just something that your friend came up with or is this like mm-hmm. a thing that's like online? And I don't know if it's a thing that they discovered online, but it's a thing that she's been doing for a couple of years now. Okay. Um, and so I just, I literally made my, made my list and it's, I haven't organized it by category or anything like that. I just was like, okay, what are some things? And, and she was like, you can keep it really basic. Like if you like, for instance, she was like, um, you can add, I want to finish my kitchen before the 20, before the end of the year. Okay. That's mm-hmm. good. That, so I added that, but like I have stuff on, on there that's like, get a new license, you know, um, mm-hmm. get the real license, which is what we're supposed to have. I think by like May or something. Um, uh, you know, um, I'm so upset with this because like I have the real ID. I yes. got it because I'm like, oh, they're threatening you. Like, right. You can't it seemed fly. like a threat, right? Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think they just put it a thing where they pushed it back like another two years because of, okay. because of what, because every state Delays. is basically their own little government and yeah. um, they don't really have the thing to do like it everywhere past- or yeah. something. And I'm like, you're all driving me crazy. Same. Like, and also in the state of New York. They want so much documentation to actually get a real ID. Okay. So it's not as easy as just going in and just having like your old one, right? I don't know what it's like in D.C., but in New York, they wanted my birth certificate, my social security number. Uh, If I had a passport, they wanted like a envelope with a bill with my name on it. Wow. They wanted documentation of where I worked. And thankfully, I... Am a adjunct professor, so I can show like yeah, a thing that I yeah. live and work here. Yeah, and I'm like, God damn, this is so much work to get a real ID. I mean, seriously, that is that sounds intense. Now I'm like, I need to see. This is why. This is why I haven't done mm-hmm. it because I have not taken the time to go look at to look at the requirements. Um, but yeah, I have that on my list because to your point too about you know when they first introduced it, it was like, you had to get it done by X, Y, Z time. Then they pushed it back. And then mm-hmm. I was like, oh, so I was like, okay, mentally I was like, okay. I mean, I followed it away. It's like, okay, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it in a couple of months or whatever time came and went. So with this list, you know, this 23 in 2023, I was like, okay, let me add that to the list. I'll get, just get it done and keep it moving. Um, but minus minor, my, my list is all over the gamut. You know, it's like, um, you know, something as simple as, you know, I want to, I want to cry real tears of joy and happiness, you know, it was like, oh, one that's of, very you sweet. know, 
Um, but then, you know, th- but then I have something, you know, practical like bake cookies, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, right. something like that. So I, that's, I think that's something that I will be obsessed with, um, checking off, um, this year. And then there was something else that, that also, how oh, that off also surfaced, um, that I was going to say, but I think, yeah, really quick. I think it's, I think it's this list mm-hmm. doing that. So nice. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, Diane, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, I really fun. appreciate you being here and uh, being it's a guest on my me. podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Yes, it was fun. Thank you for thank you for having me. I'm sorry I was long winded. <laughs> I could oh, go on and on and on. But. I I really appreciate everything you say, and you know I, I feel like you know everyone from uh, you know professionals to people who are illustration, photography, creative, mm-hmm. curious to students at art schools or probably or hopefully they listen to and so hopefully they get a lot out of this conversation so again thank you so much for all of your time yes thank you and i'll just say throw this out there representation matters mm-hmm. <laughs> across the board um had a recent experience where that was definitely the case um and I always tell people to stay curious. I mean, it keeps me going um, and doing all the things with, you know, whether it's travel or, you mm-hmm. know, hiring artists or working with creatives or taking my own, doing collaborations. It's I am able to do all of that because I am curious and um, I like to see um, I like to like to do things and experience things. So I would say the same thing to others if they have any interest in having the life that I have or a, part, a portion of it. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thank you.